It's episode 419 of Monster Kid Radio, and we are dead center, smack in the middle of Lucha de Mayo here on the show. Lucha de Mayo happens every May, and that's the month that we take a look at luchador monster movies. We've got a good one coming up here, so welcome to the show. Monster Kid Radio is a podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, and luchador aficionado, Derek M. Cook. This week... We have our regular segments. We have Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories. It's a good one. We have Kenny's segment on Famous Monsters of Filmland and how that magazine covered Mexican horror movies. And the meat of the episode, the Luchador movie discussion. We have Frank Schildener coming back to the show. He's a longtime friend of the show. He's an author. He's a great author. He's a big monster kid. He loves Luchador stuff as much as I do, if not more. And he and I are going to be talking about the Luchador film... And once again, I'm just going to use the English title because mm, don't speak Spanish. Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula and the Wolfman. It's a film from 1973. It's in vibrant color. We've got some rustling. We've got some monsters. And I mean, the big guns. We're talking about Dracula here. It's just a movie that you have to see to believe. But if that doesn't convince you, listen to Frank and I talk about it a little bit. And then maybe see it then. Bottom line, it's a fun conversation. It's even a more fun film. Now, the music that we're using this week comes from the band Atomicos. They are a surf band based out of Lethbridge, Alberta. It comes from their album Surfadelic. The song is called Dead Man's Hand. You can find them at atomicos.bandcamp.com. You're going to hear the song in its entirety at the end of the episode. They gave us the okay to run their music this time on the show. I hope you dig it and you check out their Bandcamp page when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio that we're going to get to right after this. in the dark and rise from the shadows. They can never feel the warmth of living human blood in their veins. Their bodies are cold and dead. Dracula versus Frankenstein. who serves the dead, a dead man who controls the doctor and a living creature horribly created from the mangled corpses of their victims. Dracula versus Frankenstein. His blood is cold, but his mind is keen. He cannot die, for he is already dead. His name is Dracula. Another lives, but his body belongs to the dead. The two will join forces, but only one will survive. Dracula versus Frankenstein. cemetery is a cold, lifeless place to visit at night, unless you're already dead, and your name is Dracula. Dracula. 
Together, in one film, they meet in a fight of fright. The kings of horror battle to the death. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Have you heard? Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story. Either a whole short story or a novel, a chapter or two at a time. Join us for our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu mythos at the end of the month. Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Black Clock Audio Tales. Part of darkmyths.org. Thank you. Far away, in an unknown place, there is a forgotten island where fear has lived unchallenged until now. The island of Dr. Moreau, where a madman has unlocked a secret of nature and unleashes the terrors of hell. No! 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 The island of Dr. Moreau, where strange creatures, half man, half beast, turn a tropical paradise into a raging jungle. Where lost souls shriek in the night and man is no longer safe from the creatures who now stalk him. The Island of Dr. Moreau, from American International, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you some stories contained in the EC Horror Comics. Today's story is Horror in the Night. It is from the Vault of Horror number 12, the April-May issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Harvey Kurtzman. So sit back, relax, while I tell this nightmarish story. One morning, Jim Hawkins visited his brother Tom at the family business, a roadside group of tourist cabins they rent. He found Tom drinking at 9.30 in the a.m. What's wrong with you, Jim asked. Tom told him that he had had a horrible dream and couldn't shake the fear. It gave him a feeling that disaster is coming. Tom told Jim the dream. It was about noon when a car pulled into their lot. A man and his wife wanted to rent a cabin. The man seemed fine, but the woman had an insane look in her eyes that filled Tom with dread. They signed in as Mr. and Mrs. John Smith from Nevada, a likely story. Tom put them in cabin number 10. That night, Tom felt as if the dream took him into the cabin. When Mr. Smith fell asleep, his wife got up and tried to leave him. When she opened the front door of the cabin, a cat sat on the step outside. Mrs. Smith was horrified and recoiled from the feline. She called the cat death. And even though she was terrified, she attacked and killed the cat, ripping out its throat. The fracas woke up her husband. He couldn't understand her insane desire to kill. 
He pleaded with her to go to sleep so they could complete their trip to the mental asylum in the morning. She viciously attacked her husband. He tried to subdue her, but ended up with his hands around her throat. He slowly strangled her to death. He reflected that this end was inevitable ever since their baby was killed by a cat, which spawned his wife's insane hatred of felines. Mr. Smith decided he couldn't live with what he had done and took his own life with a pistol. Tom finished telling Jim of his dream. Jim told him that he was just working too hard and not to worry about it. Just then, a car pulled up to the cabins. Out of the car emerged Mr. and Mrs. Smith, just like in his dream. Tom knew the tragedy was inevitable. The couple is a manifestation of his horrifying dream, and he cannot escape the terror. The end. I hope you enjoyed that creepy tale. The interesting storytelling technique used here is that the tale is told in a dream that by the end we realize will most likely come true. By telling the story through this predictive dream, we aren't forced to follow the husband or wife and get their perspective. We are outsiders looking in. The situation is exposed through the actions in the cabin through Tom's shocked eyes, and the details and context are filled in by the dialogue. If it weren't for the structure of the story relying on Tom's dream, it would just be a crazy lady killed by her husband. Not very interesting. The dream gives the story a taste of supernatural and the inevitable dark, dark fate that awaits the players, as well as Tom's horrified observations. Harvey Kurtzman's art is particularly strong in the character's facial expressions. Mr. Smith is shown with dark circles under his eyes and thick lips, handsome but troubled. Mrs. Smith is very obviously wrapped very, very tightly. Yeah, she's going to snap. A few panels show Mrs. Smith's terror, and they are all well done. She looks crazy dangerous. Tom is shown as a bespeckled 1950s local small businessman. Slim, prim, and proper. Not the kind of guy usually taken to an early morning drink. It makes his horror all the more effective. There are a couple of page layouts that could have been implemented better. There's at least one page where the order of the panels is hard to figure out. On the same page, we also see Mr. Smith's unfortunately drawn foot. Feet are hard. If you're interested in a copy of The Vault of Horror Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed this story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics, and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter, at Professor Frenzy, and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. 
Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Fear of the years here. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, a monster he could not control, have taken over his very soul. A screaming demon rages inside, turning him into Mr. Hyde, an unstoppable black superman. Super strong, supernatural, and super bad. His punch can topple a skyscraper. His kick can split the earth in two. More destructive than an earthquake. Mightier than a tidal wave. A one-man disaster area. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, when you're seeing what ain't, you're looking at a haint. Shot full of lead and he still ain't dead. Jump back, Jack, for your skull is cracked. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, starring Bernie Casey, Rosalind Cash, Stu Gillum, directed by William Blackella Crane. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents, so bring your mama, she'll like it too. You will freeze as you watch a warped scientist become transformed into a godless beast when his bloody scalpel probes the forbidden secrets of a woman's flesh. In Atom Age Vampire, you will flame for the stark ritual of a beautiful girl's last searing dance as tragedy forever mars her loveliness. Leaving her to face a world of terror. I give you my word that I will restore your face. Restore all your beauty. You will cringe as the demented doctor experiments with a girl's trusting innocence. But to possess the living miracle wrought by his twisted genius, he must forever sacrifice his soul to the cunning gods of evil. A transplant directly from another human being. A mad creature born of the atomic age, now shackled to a world of rotting bodies and violent death. A sadist, a criminal, a depraved animal, more ferocious than Jekyll, more monstrous than Frankenstein, more bloody than Dracula. <laughs> Fire a volley through the window pane. You will gasp as lust and madness stalk the dark and screaming night in Atom Age Vampire. Hola cabezones de Radio de los Niños Monstruos. Soy Kenny con un vistazo a Monstruos Famosos de la Tierra del Cine. The third part of Monsters from Mexico appeared in issue 124, which features a painting of Germán Robles' Vampire by Ken Kelly on the cover. The article starts on page 40 and goes on for 10 pages and has 16 photos. The article starts without introduction with descriptions of five Santo films, Revenge of the Vampire Women from 1969, Santo vs. Frankenstein's Daughter from 1971, Santo and the Mummy's Vengeance from 1971, Santo Faces Black Magic from 1972, Santo and Blue Demon vs. Dracula and Wolfman from 1972, and The Beast of Terror from 1972 featuring both Santo and the Blue Demon. Walt Lee then has this to say about women wrestlers in the movies.
In addition to the male wrestlers, a group of women wrestlers have appeared in a series of Mexican films, many of which have horror content. The films include Doctor of Doom, The Wrestling Women vs. The Aztec Mummy, The Panther Women, and The Wrestling Women vs. The Murdering Robot. In The Wrestling Women vs. Murdering Doctor, seen on American television as Doctor of Doom, Gomar, a human animal created in the laboratory with transplanted organs and the brain of a beast, menaces the heroines. The arch-villain is an evil mass scientist who kidnaps girls for brain transplants. The scientist uses parts of Gomar, a new brain and a female corpse, to produce Vendetta, a telepathically controlled female wrestler. At the end of the film, Vendetta is shot and falls from a high tower. In The Wrestling Woman vs. The Murdering Robot, the heroines encounter a hideously disfigured man. Mr. Lee continues with a detailed synopsis of Panther Women, then mentions a new hero, the incredible Professor Zovek from 1972. In this film, a new superhero is introduced, Professor Zovek. He has acquired his paranormal powers after extensive studies in monasteries in Tibet. The villain of the film is an obsessed scientist who creates vampire-like zombies. His great powers derive from his possession of a strange idol. The article ends with the synopsis of the sequel, Invasion of the Dead, which features Professor Zovek and Blue Demon. Adios, amigos. comes the diabolic killer of beautiful women, the vampire's coffin. See a vampire's body stolen from its tomb. A psycho killer removes the stake so the vampire can again prey on beautiful women. And to complete a double night of horror, a monstrous nightmare of terror turned loose in a fight to the death. The robot versus the Aztec mummy. They will bring you a night of terror. them, but don't come alone. The Vampire Coffin in an all-new double horrorama show with The Robot versus the Aztec Mummy, presented in Hypnoscope. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, and if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? 
All the robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. We dare not show you the rest of this scene. It is too shocking to watch. Black Pit of Dr. M. I'm innocent. I'm being hung for a crime that's not mine. Please bear with us. We must leave the rest of this sequence to your imagination. It is too diabolical for you to take. Black Pit of Dr. M. We must apologize. The shocks you are missing would make your blood run cold. Not since the cabinet of Dr. Caligari has the screen been so filled with the eerie. The shocking. The incredible. The diabolical. We warn you. See it only if you can take sudden shocks. Shattering terror. Black Pit of Dr. M. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. We have a great friend of mine here on the show, a great friend of the show this time around. You know, I can't talk about Luchador movies without talking with author Frank Schildener. How are you doing, sir? I am awesome, Derek, and welcome everybody to another year of Lucha de Mayo. Oh, man, I love chatting about this stuff with you, but you've been on the show, uh, let's see, when was the last time you were on the show? About like four or five months ago. It's been a little while. So, uh, Yeah, sen- the, the Dark Shadows. Yeah, since then, you've had a new book come out. Yes, I did. I had my first science fiction, uh, kind of a gothic science fiction, called Irma Vep and the Great Brain of Mars. Uh, It's from Black Coat Press. It was a lot of fun to write, and it's a very metropolis kind of story. Oh, so you know I'm going to respond to that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, Irma Vep was one of the original movie antiheroes. She was in a a series of uh, French serials in 1915 called Les Vampires. And the vampires in the movie were not the blood-sucking kind. It was a gang. And she was one of the top burglars of this gang, uh, Irma Vep, which if you respell the letters, is vampire. Oh, hey, look at that. Yeah, look at that. 
they were. They I, did, I didn't catch that until just now. Hey, look I at that. I didn't catch it until it was told to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote this uh, book using her as one of the main characters. And she was played by this beautiful actress in 1915 called Musadora, whose image became pretty much the example of French beauty way into the 40s. I mean, she was just this beautiful, dark-haired woman. And one of the interesting parts of this serial, which is, I think, 15-part serial, by the way, with an hour each, is they keep having to change the storyline because it was World War One, and the actors kept getting drafted. Oh, no. Yes. So they had, like, four <laughs> different bad guys leading the vampires because they kept losing them. They kept getting sent to the front. Well then, <laughs> uh, so that was a lot of fun. It was a it's a kind of gothic science fiction story set in the 1920s, and um, Irma Vep and her partner, who is known as the Edelon, which uh, is a sort of undead kind of term, are taking on a alien who took over a body who's trying to kind of transform the world into a kind of a metropolis world and has a lot of metropolis ties to it okay for example a certain rotvang <laughs> is one of the characters nice yeah i brought out Rotvang. and i got the honor of writing him so i've had a lot of fun there i'm not the first Kim Newman, I think, wrote him long before I ever did. But he's Kim Newman. What can you do? Well, that's very, very cool, man. Congratulations on, on dipping into a new genre, kind of, sort of, you know, science fiction stuff. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a lot. It was a lot of fun, and it was also a nice change of pace since I usually write horror or horror-based concepts. And when I was discussing it with my publisher, Jean-Marc Lefissier, he and I were talking about it through emails, and he's like, okay, you're, so you're telling me this is going to be pure science fiction. No monsters, no demons. It's like, I like that. That's so different from you. It's like, yeah, you're not going to put any monsters or vampires. None. The rule. They cannot be in this world. Okay. It's okay. There's plenty of other scary stuff in that kind of world. Now, you haven't given up on the monsters, so, I mean, we're going to see more monsters from you down the line, right? Oh, gosh, yes. There's tons, though. There... You, you were worrying me there for a minute there, Frank. No, no, no. I never give that up. I mean, my just with Black Coat Press, I have two series going. In September, the third Frankenstein book that I wrote for Black Coat Press with the monster Garul is returning in The Spells of Frankenstein. The Spells of Frankenstein. Okay. Yes, it's a very Lovecraftian meet Frankenstein kind of book. Very, very cool, man. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. I got some advice before I did some work on it from Pete Rollick. Uh, he also gave me some advice on another book I wrote that's being looked at by an agent. I'll see what happens there. That's a French book. And another one with a different agent that he gave me advice on. It's a Roman horror set in the pre-Julius Caesar period. Oh, wow. And I have a Soviet novel that's being read by a publisher right now. You're all over the place, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm always all over the place. And when, I, when all we'll find out goes on there, I have a couple more books in the pipeline. And then I'm, in a month or two, I'm probably going to start the third Napoleon Vampire Hunter book. Right on. Yeah, I'm never going to slow down. Right on. Excellent. And I'm on my first uh, nonfiction book we and I were talking about. Uh, I'm writing a book on the Zadoichi series. Okay. Uh, the, the 26th film series, the Shintaro Cuts, 
as the blind swordsman. I didn't know if you wanted to bring that up or not. So, uh, okay. Oh yeah. No, I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm talking about it all the time. And I'm very positive that my wife is very getting sick of hearing about Zadoichi all the time. <laughs> Since that's 26 movies and I watch them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to jinx anything by bringing it up before the book was done. No, no, I don't, I don't have that kind of feeling. I, don't take myself that kind of serious. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, you are a busy, busy man. So thank you for taking the time to join me here on my little podcast to talk about this little movie today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Plus, uh, I, I would have felt insulted if you you just, you just started discussing it with me. What January? Yeah, yeah. We got to make this a regular thing. I, this is the second year in a row that we we're actually going to pull off every single week being a Luchador monster movie. So that's. So, so I'm excited about that, that we're actually going to pull it off this time around. Uh, and we're going to pull it off with style because it's a twofer, Santo and Blue Demon, and two big monsters too. And we're going to get to all of that, of course. But you know, you know there's something else we got to do first, sir. Of course there is. Oh yeah, we have a game that we play uh, with everybody that comes on the show every single time. It's called the Classic Five. And for listeners who are just now joining us or might have forgotten since last week, the Classic Five is a card game that we have here that we play on Monster Kid Radio. Okay, it's not really a game. It's a conversation starter. As if Frank and I need an excuse to start a conversation. But it's a conversation starter. Each one of these cards says a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style? Question. There are no wrong answers. Frank, are you ready to play? I am looking forward to it, Derek. All right, here we go. Card number one. Who else could have or should have played a werewolf? Could have or should have played a werewolf. Mm, that's a really good one. Christopher Lee. I'm trying to imagine him losing control enough to go there. That's why I want to see it, because he's done so many. And that's the gap. Hmm. He's been, obviously, Dracula. He's been the mummy. He's been evil characters. He's been good characters. He's been a dark Sith. He's been everything. He was in Lord of the Rings and knew more about Lord of the Rings than anybody on the set. He was a James Bond villain, but he was never a wolf man. There you go. He pretty much did them all. I mean, Sherlock Holmes, he did, of course, the Duke, Duke <laughs> shoots, you know. <laughs> Oh, Duke de la Richelieu, my, one of my favorite movies of all time. That's why and, I brought it up. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, you know me. I'm a Dennis Wheatley maniac, probably one of maybe seven left on Earth. But that's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. And one time you will have me on that show. <laughs> <laughs> someday, someday, man. Someday, someday. Uh, card number two. What other monster should Abbott and Costello have met in the movies? What other monsters should Abbott and Costello have met in the movies? Uh, well, the fortunate thing about Abbott and Costello is they met the great ones, even if they weren't the best. I mean, the best they ever did, they got to meet Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, and the Invisible Man. Probably the funniest Abbott and Costello ever made, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. They met Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the embodiment of Boris Karloff. Though the movie wasn't great, Boris Karloff was fantastic. They even met the mummy in a very lesser thing. So I have to go the Derek route and say the creature from the Black Lagoon. You know, every time I play this game with somebody, that's always what they say. And I suspect it's because it's me. <laughs> of course it's because of you. If I didn't say that, what am I going to say? King Kong? Come on, you got the creature from the Black Lagoon. 
I mean, Costello screaming and running around through the swamp. Hey, beautiful girl. There's got to be. Technically, Costello met the creature briefly on television. Technically. I did not know that. Yeah, part of the promotion for the film on the was it the Colgate Comedy Hour. You know, one of the shows that they were on. Uh, they had a skit a bit where uh, Costello's like in the storage room where they keep all the monster makeups and the gill man comes out and scares him. It's like, Oh, it's the new monster. It's the new feature. You know, the, the new uh, scary sensation from universal just briefly. There's not really a huge interaction, but he does pop out of a box and scare Costello. I like to have seen how he played it off. I mean, Luke Costello had the ability to make a funny scene. Oh yeah. Out of just standing next to something. And one of the famous stories about uh, Frankenstein was when he did the scene where he sits in Glenn Strange's lap, mm-hmm. you have to watch it carefully. Glenn Strange is fighting laughter. You'll watch the end of the scene. His face is twitching because Costello would make him hysterical with laughter all the time. And at the very end of that scene, you actually look and his face is twitching because he's trying to fight laughter. Oh, yeah. I, I can't As, imagine being on that set. That must have been a nightmare to keep a straight face. <laughs> All right, card number three. Vincent Price or Boris Karloff? Boris Karloff. Yeah? I love Vincent. I love Vincent Price. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love Vincent Price. And it's not by a lot. But that's Boris Karloff you're talking about. What's your favorite Boris Karloff film? Favorite Boris Karloff That's not a question on the, on the in the game. I'm just curious. No, I know. <laughs> I know. You got to thought. You got to ask. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Um, the Tower of London, huh? And probably, though, above all of them, it have to be the Black Cat. Hmm. The Black Cat was just oh god. The two of them played off each other so well. I love Bela. All right, card number four. Which movie do you prefer, Tarantula or Them? Them. Them. Watch out for them. A menace never known to man or beast before. An endless horde of crawling, crushing, gigantic creatures. So horrifying, there was no word to describe them. Watch out for them. Watch out for Warner Brothers' screaming new shock sensation, them. Yes, I saw them. They were huge and scaly, and they had gigantic jaws, and and then one came at me. Kill one, and two take its place. This is the endless onslaught of them clawing up out of the earth from mile-deep catacombs. See them! The most astounding journey into terror ever taken. Starring James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, Joan Weldon, and James Arnett. Them! I love them. Them is one of my first movies. Oh, yeah? My, my parents loved movies. They, my, my late dad, my, my mom was still around. They loved movies, and they loved the old sci-fi movies like that. And them was a particular favorite of my mother's along with uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers because of the greater implications the story is supposed to mean. And so it was probably my first, I guess you could call them kaiju movie of all time. And I just thought that it was the one of the best. I own it. I love it. I, don't get me wrong. Tarantula's scary, awesome movie, but them. Wow. So I love that movie. When you say the implications of what they're supposed to mean, what do you mean by that? I mean, I know in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but with them, what do you mean? Well, with them, them was just like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There was a subtext in the story of the fear of creeping communism. 
for the period. The the hidden cost of the the war as well as what could happen by the fact that we're fighting these people and they're underground and they might sneak in and destroy our culture and everything. There was a lot of extras that were in those movies. A lot of movies back then were about the political climate of the United States. We had the obvious implications in them. What happens with when we un, uh, when we split the atom, the atomic age we were in, but it was also about the enemies of America, and they're creeping within and underneath, and they're even saying it several times. They could destroy the Earth. It's it was it was a fascinating subtext to the story that I learned from when I was little and probably didn't understand a word my mother was talking about. But <laughs> that's what you get when you're raised by a hippie. I got sci-fi with politics. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk about hippie stuff here in a second. Final card. <laughs> Final card. If you could live inside a classic monster movie, which movie would it be? The Hammer World, of course. You know my reason for that. I hope it's more than just the women. Yes! Hammer. You're going to live in a world where, okay, you, you, women might get attacked by vampires. Men really don't. And every woman in there is a supermodel. Why wouldn't I want to live there? I'm not I close. I'm just... with, with Peter Cushing as Van Helsing, help him out. You know, and oh, You'd help him out. Of course I'd help him out. <laughs> it's Peter Cushing. But yeah, always got to choose Hammer. It's a it's a world filled with supermodels and regular looking guys. I'll fit in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good way to end the classic five. <laughs> I try to give you something unique every time. Hey man, no, it works for me. It works for me. Now I don't have any luchador flavored cards in the classic five deck. Maybe I should. I don't know. It's it's a little bit more niche than some of the other stuff we talk about here. So I don't know how well it would go over, but. You know. Well, you know, you do it if you might want to do a subset of cards. Add one card uh, to the classic five for Lucha de Mayo. That's yeah, it, because everybody will have seen something. Yeah, there you go. Maybe make a little exclusive Lucha de Mayo deck. Um, there you go. Put something together because you know they are a little less. Um, I'd say even more, even more or less. No, just even less. <laughs> wow, I still need to drink some caffeine. Uh, it's even less mainstream than a lot of the monster movies we talk about here on the show, but man, do I love them. They're just so much fun. They represent a popularity thanks to the early videotape revolution. At the time when movies were not plentiful on video, but people wanted to run video stores, so these movies became very popular, and pretty much every place had something from Mexico, and this was a subset of Mexican horror. One movie kind of pervaded across the country, and it was not a luchador Mexican movie, but it was a Mexican horror movie called Night of Bloody Apes. Right. And mm -hmm. I've, I saw it in every video store. It was, you know, even in Kim's Underground, I mean, in New York, it was it was one of these universal things where, all right, it's a name, I'll put it in my horror section kind of thing. The luchadors were a subset of these Mexican horror films, and it increased in volume because of that, but it never got big. I still love them, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's this weird blend of 
genre filmmaking. You know, you've got the, the monstrous elements. And, you know, the Luchador movies actually didn't start with, like, the flat-out monsters. Sometimes they were just, like, spy thriller-type movies, like the first Momoskris film. But, you know, once you introduce the monsters on your set. And there, there's this weird mix of monsters, of genre, uh, and then this superhero thing going on with the wrestler characters. And it's just fascinating to me that this became such a thing for a set period of time in Mexico and Mexican pop culture. And I know there are still luchadors working today, but I don't feel like it's as big as it was during the days of Santo and Blue Demon. Well, I don't think it had the, it had the pervasive element because there's so many other options. Yeah. Whereas back at the, you know, 60s, 70s, Mexico didn't have as many options in terms of the media. So wrestling was one of the biggest entertainment venues in the country. It still is. It's still massive. And they invented a whole subculture in their wrestling through the luchadors, the masked wrestlers, with unwritten rules on how they should behave and how things should be done both in the ring and out of the ring. And one of the fascinating aspects of that is if you are a masked luchador to this day, your name is not disclosed to the general public. It is kept as as private and secret. And there are wrestlers who went, well, Santo himself, he you nobody knew his name or his identity until he retired and took his mask off publicly. And that TV. was just and that was just a real brief moment and that's been disputed. That's been argued actually. Was that intentionally done? Because it looks like it might have been done without his knowledge, but I think he probably orchestrated that. I think it was intentional. I believe it's intentional because he had his family was at that point in wrestling. His mm-hmm. son was a, was the son of Santo. It, he went out that way. A lot of wrestlers did, though some wrestlers, uh, the other aspect of it is you, if you lose your mask, you would bet your mask in the ring. If you lose it, you have to take it off in the ring and hand it to the person who won it and you're not allowed to wear a mask again. Uh, I understand the implications and the history behind it. Sure. Because a lot of people uh, in the business take that very, very personally and seriously. Very seriously, especially the older school folks. Yes. Um, or like Blue Demon Jr. takes it very seriously, you know. Oh, yes. But yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me. It's just this, this neat little bubble of disparate pop culture elements that come together in such a wonderful way for me. And when you throw monsters into the mix, man, I mean, (laughs) I'm already there, man. I'm ready to go. (laughs) You can't go wrong when, when you got masked wrestlers taking on monsters, it's just pure fun. Oh yeah. You know, you're going to have a a joy. Oh yeah. There's no, no, uh, no question there. Sign me up. I'm ready to go. Where's my popcorn, you know? (laughs) So what are we talking about today? We're talking about a, a movie that's, doesn't have just one, but two of the big three. Uh, there are supposedly, well, not supposedly, there are the three big names of the Luchador monster movie or the Luchador movie phenomenon, El Santo, Blue Demon, and Mil Mascaras. This one's got Santo and Blue Demon in it together. Uh, they are portrayed as friends, and at the end of the film, they're even tag-teaming together. In real life, they really didn't all get along. You know, there was a competition thing there. When Blue Demon started, he was a Rudo, a bad guy wrestler. And he and his partner, the Black Shadow, were 
opponents of Santo. And the Blue Demon is one of the few wrestlers in history who beat Santo. And that rankled him because he had a heck of an ego. They were not friends. They could work together, but they didn't like each other, really. And then Mil Mascaros was kind of the young <laughs> upstart of the three. He was much younger than them all uh, and really kind of came, came from a, a slightly different background than the other two. So, yeah, they really didn't have a lot of real common ground outside of the masks and the monsters. Uh, but you wouldn't know it. I mean, you watch these movies and is the acting like Oscar worthy? Well, let's be honest. No, but they pull it off and you believe that they hang out together. And that's all we really need, right? They're able to use their wrestling acting side of the skills and work together. I mean, wrestlers, I give a lot of wrestlers credit for that. There are wrestlers who genuinely can't stand each other, who have to work together all the time. And they make it work because it, they take that that aspect of the acting side of it and just put it onto their, in front of everybody. And then, you know, we hit the locker room, we go our separate directions. The Santo and the Blue Demon are the best example of that. They, they weren't friends, they, they weren't compatriots, but they could work together and they made these movies. And there were elements that we'll talk about as we go that show there were there were issues there. But when they're on screen together, there's no negativity. It, were, it flows in, in its own uh, pre-Marvel Comics kind of way. <laughs> you know, that comes up quite a bit. These movies were their own kind of cinematic universe. And in some ways, yes, they were. But in other ways, they're not. Because you will watch one movie and Santo says there's a vampire and nobody believes him. The following movie, there's a vampire. Oh, yeah, we know Santo. Thanks for helping. The next movie, Santo doesn't believe there's a vampire. So right. there, there are some inconsistencies there, but it is kind of a, a cool little world to exist in for a little while. So we're going to take a step into Santo and the Blue Demon. It meet uh, Dracula and the Wolfman, which I believe is Santo y Blue Demon contra Dracula y el Hombre Lobo, which with, with my pronunciation, if I got through it even semi-correctly, I'm proud of myself. You either pronounce it correctly or summoned a demon somewhere. I'm not really yeah, sure. Yeah, well, but... me, that's always an option. <laughs> um, and... Like all of these movies, we open with a wrestling match. Well, we have to. And this one's a little unique uh, in terms of the movies that we sometimes talk about here during Lucha de Mayo. Darn it, I did it again. Lucha de Mayo. I can't get it Mayo. out of my head. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, this one's pretty unique in that these wrestling matches seem staged for the film. A lot of times you will actually see a real arena a real crowd. It might even be footage from a real match that's just been incorporated into the film and then repurposed. This time around, though, you hear them, but you never see the crowd. And the background is very flat. There's a colored screen behind them, really, or scrim of some sort. But yeah, it's, it's just a wrestling match set up for the film. I don't mind it, and I appreciate the sounds of the crowd. That's great. And there's a very enthusiastic commentator. The commentator continually tells you how Santo is the hero of all of Mexico, and everybody is hoping he can win. And he's fighting a wrestler. Uh, I'm going to try to use the English terms just to make my life a little easier and not insult people. Uh, but he was the White Angel. Yeah. And the White Angel was actually a very famous wrestler. Okay. He was a a, a champion wrestler who started out as um, under the name of the Black Cat with a black mask. He got unmasked. 
And you can, if you take a new identity, take on another mask, but you have to be a totally new character, new identity, you know, new story. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's not an uncommon thing. So he was encouraged to take on a white mask by another wrestler known as Dr. Wagner. And Dr. Wagner and the White Angel were the premier bad guy team in like the 70s. They were the White Wave and they were very, very famous bad guys and they won championships over the years because of it. They were very, very popular wrestlers uh, as the bad guy wrestlers being the Rudos. And one interesting aspect of their career is they were both unmasked by the same wrestler in separate masks. Oh, no. They both lost to, um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, uh, El Solitario, I believe is his name. And he was a, a shorter wrestler, muscular guy who beat them both and got the two white masks out of these two. I think he's still around, too. Uh, so, yeah, there was a famous one. Dr. Wagner just wore a pure white mask and his son, Dr. Wagner Jr., is still a wrestler. So, yeah, they, they were he was a famous, famous wrestler. And he gets into this match with Santo and it's a pretty cool match. They, they actually had a good time with it. Right on. Yeah. Then we meet Santo's girlfriend. <laughs> who is usually somebody different in a lot of these movies. It's the James Bond girlfriend syndrome. Yeah, and she's a very, very beautiful actress. I mean, she was really a very attractive woman, and she is the niece of a professor, Cristobaldi or something Cristaldi, like that. Cristaldi, yes, Cristaldi. Cristaldi, see my pronunciation. Professor Cristaldi, whose ancestor was an alchemist and a magician who defeated Dracula and the Wolfman in Europe. So that was a that's your setup right there. Uh-huh. It's pretty much laid out for you. Yep, yep. Uh, we've got this guy. I think they even call him a hunchback in the film, but he really just looks like somebody who needs to stand. I, I, he doesn't really look hunchbacky to me. No, Eric the Hunchback. Uh, he was played by an actor named uh, Wally Baron, I believe is his name. Mm-hmm. Wally. Yeah. They sort of added a little padding to one shoulder. But he just looks like a heavy set guy with a with bad posture, to be honest with you. Really, yeah, he does. And it's not like these movies didn't know how to do hunchbacks. Other films they have the hunchback stereotype, but whatever. He has the bodies of Dracula and the Wolfman, and he's talking about how he's going to for Satan bring them back. But then in the same speech, Eric the Hunchback says the real reason he's bringing them back is he wants Dracula's treasure. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't get that one right. Yeah, and I I wonder, this Dracula actually appeared in another Santo movie involving Dracula's treasure. Yeah, Aldo Monti was the actor who played Dracula. He was an Italian actor who moved to Mexico as an actor. That was his two famous roles, though he did play uh, another vampire named Robles in another movie. He was the villain in Santo and Dracula's treasure, which is a time travel strange movie that is one of the funniest, strangest, silliest things I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's it's like, wow, what were you doing when you wrote this Alfredo Salazar? <laughs> yeah. He wrote this one, by the way. Alfredo Salazar is the he's kind of one of the early monster guys of Mexico. He wrote the Aztec mummy movies, mm-hmm. the early Aztec mummy movies, pre any wrestlers. He also wrote the Aztec mummy versus the wrestling women. 
So he he was around for a while, but the thing with Alfredo Salazar is I don't think he reread himself too often because he would put something out there and then you'd be like, well, what? That doesn't even make sense with what you were saying five minutes ago. And again, I wonder if the reference to Dracula's treasure is is an intentional reference to the other film because the other film came out the year a couple of years before. So you know who knows, but yeah, it does kind of come up out of the it's like um okay, it doesn't get mentioned much more. It just comes no. up the one time. The Wolfman. I, I, we got to talk about the Wolfman real quick. What's his <laughs> real name in the movie? <laughs> his real name. Oh, God. You can't go wrong with this. Rufus Rex the Wolfman. <laughs> oh, man. Rufus Rex, played by Augustin Martinez Solaris, is the Wolfman in this thing. And uh, one, he's got the coolest shirt ever. Uh, yes. <laughs> Yes. I'd rock that. It, I'd rock that. It is a gold mariachi style shirt with laces in the front. It is just like, wow, where did you find that? I love it. Oh, I do. <laughs> I do. So the girlfriend brings Santo to her uncle, who tells us in exposition the entire story of setting up the movie. Which we get in these films. It's part of the part of the deal. Yeah, and all of it always seems to be in the book that's in that library. It tells every detail of it. <laughs> and folks, if you've never seen these movies, they, they ain't subtle. Let's be straight. They ain't subtle. Well, is, is wrestling subtle at all anyway? I no, mean, that, it's, that's, it's just, that is a yeah. very good point. <laughs> and... One of the funniest aspects to me in this movie is he's talking about how they were killed by this dagger from this town. And he walks across the room and there's the dagger. Mm -hmm. It's just sitting on the shelf. Yeah, it's, it's less Chekhov's gun and more, hey, everybody look at this. Look at this. And the thing is that it looks like a, pro a bad problem. Oh, it doesn't look very frightening or intimidating at all. No, it looks like the kind of knife that is in the bargain bin in a costume store. Yeah. Here's all those extra weird knives with strange tops and gold handles. That's where that one is. It's in the dollar store during Halloween season, basically. It looks like that. Yes. But, you know, whatever. You go in with this with a whatever attitude and you're already good. Yeah. So... Knowing that he, this is about to happen and uh, because of the, the stars are aligned and all of the exposition, he takes the knife, this professor, and goes into his granddaughter's room and leaves it on her nightstand. Sure. Which is, of course, where you want to leave a weapon near a child as protection from her. Now... I can accept many, 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 many strange things in movies, but this is Mexico, and I've been to Mexico, uh -huh. and they're not going to run out of crosses anytime soon. <laughs> okay. So that was the first thought in my head. This is protection, but we've got over a hundred years at this point worth of knowledge that just put the cross in there. And this is Mexico. You could probably get five of them in one block, you know? Wow. But okay. <laughs> okay. Do I have your permission to use that in something? That's a wonderful you line, dude. That's so you, awesome. It is all yours. Please go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> oh, that's, that's 
the best. Okay. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm pre-centered I'm there. Pre-center. Okay. Yep. Right back to the movies, and Santo then immediately says, "Well, he's going to call in his friend who knows this stuff as well." And that's the introduction to the Blue Demons match. Yes. Again, it's obviously staged for the film. And this time, who's he facing? Renato the Hippie. <laughs> what? Renato the Hippie, who was a professional wrestler of small note. He was part of like the Hippie Brothers or something like that in the 70s. And I think his partner was like the, the Viking face or something like that. I, I Very, very little information on this guy. He's actually taller than the other two. He towers over him. The thing about both the White Angel and uh, Renato the Hippie is they actually had better physiques than Santo. You know, they actually looked like they were in incredibly good shape. Now... The Blue Demon was always in very good shape. He, he was actually, he prided himself for it. Santo looked like the older school kind of wrestler, which is, he was strong looking, but he was not really toned. The guy who played Renato the Hippie actually had a pretty toned physique. He was a pretty, he moved well too. So they call him the, you know, Renato the Hippie in the ring, uh, in the film. That, that was his character as a wrestler. Mm-hmm. But in the ring, he's not wearing anything that would say, hey, he's a hippie. Now his going out to the, to the ring, he did have like the peace symbol and the headband and all that. Uh, if you look him up online, you can see plenty of pictures of that. But in the yeah. film itself, he's just a guy wearing trunks. Yeah. And he had some, you know, his hair was a little loose, but you know, really, you know, it was very bargain basement in terms of the what we saw there. And they had a decent match. One of the things that's, uh, that helps is that you get to actually see them using real moves. The Blue Demon actually was a pretty good wrestler. He knew a lot of very excellent technical grappling. Now, uh, we didn't mention it because it didn't come up, but I'm a wrestler. I'm a grappler. I'm a martial artist, really. Not a professional wrestler. I'm an actual sparring grappler. Mm-hmm. And I teach ground fighting a lot i love that uh, jujitsu and and stuff like that and i'm watching the moves that the blue demon is using and many of them are actually good submission grappling moves yeah i mean genuine stuff which people forget that a lot of the old wrestlers were actually trained submission grapplers and you really wouldn't want to mess with them when you think especially today luchador you think about the high-flying, the acrobatics, and that's certainly part of it and very cool to watch. But really, a lot of it is the graps. You know, it's a lot of ground base. It's the grappling. You talk about Santo having that more traditional look. I mean, he's a big barrel-chested guy. You can't imagine him flying through the air, right? No. no. There's actual wrestling technique here. That is very similar to a lot of very similar to a lot of things you'd see with submission-based wrestling up here in the states, and it's, yes. it's kind of cool to see. It's very athletic, just very cool. It's also very punishing on your body. Oh yeah, because I'm a living embodiment of how, how much damage you can do to your body. Sure. As a martial artist, I have a lot of issues uh, health-wise with um, injuries, but. If you're a martial artist and you're real, you're going to have them. But the Blue Demon, actually, I was very impressed with his uh, ring skills. But then we get to the fun stuff. We go to Eric the Hunchback and his Temple of Doom, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the parts of it that just I, oh, God, I love it, is every time he would do like a pause in this prayer, there were a couple of these um, gargoyles there, and they'd start blowing fire, 
right in the middle of the room. I loved that so much. It seemed like I kept listening. Okay, what's the magic word that keeps triggering those? Because they're awesome. (laughs) Yes, they really were. And he's bringing back Dracula and the Wolfman who had this plan to take over the world. And he kidnaps the professor. And that was probably the funniest part of the movie for me because – the professor is the is his dapper, well dressed guy named uh, his acting name is Jorge Mondragon. Great name. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was in a, he was in a few of these kind of movies in lesser parts, and he puts the knife down on his granddaughter's nightstand and goes into his room and he starts changing, and he goes to put his clothing away in the closet, and. Out jumps Eric the, the Necromancer, <laughs> who kidnaps him and brings him to his little lair. He is now hanging him upside down in the lair, and he does a prayer, and he then opens up these two mummy cases. Uh, they were actually pretty good-looking for wooden cases. They looked very, like, stone. Yeah. Really well yeah. made. They did. And inside there are... a couple of pure white skeletons the kind you'd see in science class (laughs) just empty white skeletons and he does his little prayer and he cuts the professor's throat and the blood falls onto the skull of the monsters and every time it hits it sizzles like acid and smoke comes out and this is the first time I noticed this, Derek. Okay. Now, he cut the guy's throat, and the guy is hanging upside down, head down over them, and he's dead. When they do a scene back to it, when he's doing you know, his exposition again, the blood has somehow gone up his face and up onto his chest. Hmm. It's down his face, but it's also up, like as if the blood went up and down at the same time. So it was a, it was a kind of a like a, okay I don't think you really thought gravity through on this one, <laughs> um, but that's you know that's what you do when you watch these movies, and then Dracula rises from the coffin, Aldo Monte, who is a good looking guy, he was a good looking oh, guy. he looks great as a vampire this guy's awesome, yeah he really looks like what everybody grew up thinking a vampire should look like. He is dark-haired. He's very, very good-looking in a kind of, I'm going to bite your way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he he cuts an imposing figure. Uh, He looks great. He's got the charisma. He's got the awesome medallion for dry. I mean, he just looks awesome. Yeah, they they literally must have, like, gone somewhere and said, okay, we need the – American version of the the Dracula outfit that you see in every store, you know, in every costume rental, you want the Dracula look. It's universal now. That's the look. And he can pull it off. Indeed. He pulled it off. Oh, sure. Which most people can't. (laughs) I include myself (laughs) in that one. Most people can't pull it off. This guy pulls it off. And he steps out and he even walks in the overly dramatic slow manner that uh Bela kind of invented for the move for the movie which probably co- goes back to hundreds of years of gothic plays 
And then we get the Wolfman. And he comes up in that mariachi suit we talk about. <laughs> and the Wolfman looks like some of the Paul Nashy Wolfmen that he wore, did as Valdemar Daniski you know, in his series. He has heavy, heavy fur and scary teeth and a sort of combination of a kid with a makeup kit who was watching uh, Lon Chaney Jr. Though the, the fur was hot, was a lot darker. Now, my friend Chuck Loridans has always believed that that was Valdemar Daniski in the, in the coffin. Really? Yeah, he does. He, and you know what? I like it. He thinks that that was Valdemar Daninsky. And the look is very similar. So you know what? As far as I'm concerned, it's him. Huh, <laughs> I, I, um, hmm. I, I find that to be a bit of a stretch, but, you know, I, I mean, I certainly see the influence. Yes. If nothing else. Of course. And, you know, if you don't agree, it's fine. <laughs> it's not going to make any difference <laughs> to either of us. I just think it's fun. And Dracula is going to... Take revenge on the Cristaldi family. Is that the pronunciation? I'm sorry. I think so, yeah. Yeah, the Cristaldi family. The plan starts in the funniest way possible. They're going to use the werewolf, and he turns into a human. He's a fairly good... Uh, Augustine Martinez Solares was a pretty good-looking actor. Um, though I wouldn't call him, like, leading man handsome. You know, he kind of reminds me of the actors who were the second bad guy who was always standing behind the main bad guy. Okay. So he kind of was in the perfect spot. That's just the way he looked to me when I saw him. Okay. Decent looking guy, a good actor in his part for what he does. He didn't have a lot of a career, though. He was one of the people in Night of Bloody Apes. Okay. And I think he was in one of the Blue Demon movies. And I do know he was in Santo versus the Blue Demon in Atlantis. But I'm not really sure much about his career. And they send uh, the, the wolf man in his normal, uh, uh, dressed regular. They put him in a regular suit. And he goes out and to meet the professor's daughter, played by another very pretty actress. Though not as good looking as Santo's girlfriend, the, 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 the niece. I think that was on purpose. Santo always had to have the best. Well, just to well, give yeah. a point there, yeah. just to give a point there, if you watch the opening credits, Santo's name is in like, let, let's use font terms in terms of computers. Santo's name is in like 18 point type. When you go to the Blue Demon and everybody else, they're in 10 point type. Santo always had to have his name bigger than everybody in, the, uh, in there, including in one movie where he, he was only showing up at the end. And got a really dude kind of attitude from everybody who watched the movie and in them. I think, yeah, we talk about that a lot. We always talk about it because it was the ultimate early, really, man, kind of moment. You know, it's where everybody's fighting the bad guys, everybody's fighting the bad guys, and then Santo shows up at the end and solves the problem. With a flame pistol gun. Like, yeah. I mean, there's that, mm -hmm. right? That's cool. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> uh, really, dude? You know, we've done all this and this is it. So, <laughs> Alfredo Salazar, who wrote a lot of these kind of stories, uh -huh. uh, I think he watched American TV, or at least American, you know, B-quality movies, because he used 
the most B quality way of having Wolfman Rufus meet the girl. She's getting she's out shopping, putting things in her car, and guys grab her. And they're mugging her. And he comes off and he beats them up. They're actually working for Eric, the the hunchback. And she then immediately falls in love with him. Which I gotta tell you, I've yet to see happen in real life, but it's interesting. <laughs> well, I don't know if you knew this, Frank, but you know, werewolves and wolfmen, they aren't real, so you know. They aren't? <laughs> really? I'm just saying. I'm just talking the whole I know fly up falls in love thing, but okay. That's where you want to go. I'm just saying, man. Well, well, don't say that. (laughs) Really? You're going to kill your own market? No, they're real folks. Just most of them work for the government. There, there, there's the political moment. Wow. (laughs) That happened. Okay. Remember, I'm a government employee. I'm allowed to say this. (laughs) So they immediately fall in love. (laughs) Because... Would you say it was because of his animal magnetism? Oh, I knew you were going to say that. It's like, oh god, you know, it's it's <laughs> it, there's a reason we're on opposite coasts because I'd have to hit you, but you had to go there. Thank I would have gone there if you did it. So let's let's just be honest. Uh, it, it, yeah, his animal magnetism, and he immediately then brings her after one of their dates to meet Dracula, and well, she's a vampire. She's a vampire now. Dracula comes to go and attack the rest of the family, the niece and the granddaughter that are in the, is in the house. But he's driven off by the dagger on the nightstand, which, you know, I never knew dra- daggers did that to Dracula. That was a new one on me. But he saw that. And even kind of glows a little bit, which I thought was a neat effect. Now, okay. They just shine some light on it to make it reflect or whatever. But I thought it was kind of a neat little moment. You know, here's a little bit of magic to throw into the mix. No, no, I, I thought that actually kind of made it a little better. Yeah. I mean, that that actually I did like that it started glowing and he immediately, you know, runs away. And the funny thing now, when Dracula turned into a bat, it's not the Walter Lance animation we saw in Universal. It's not the puff of smoke we saw in, you know, cheap movies. It's they turn the camera off and they flung a paper bat. (laughs) You know, it's like all of a sudden there's a paper bat and they fling it out the window. You know, one. (laughs) There's a moment in the movie later on, another vampire attacks this pretty maid. And when he has to fly away, they didn't even waste time with it. They literally, they you blink and there's a paper bat flying out the window at like thirty miles an hour. You know, it it it's they don't even flap wings. It's just zip. They're gone. It, it, it's so funny. It's my kind Absolutely. of filmmaking, man. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I thought it was great. It's like if you're gonna have have this, you gotta have fun with it. So everything starts to go to go into trouble, and. Santo and the Blue Demon follow Eric the the Hunchback for a while and get into a brawl with all his men, which is a standard moment in all these movies. Yeah. Um, Despite the fact they have guns. (laughs) Well. (laughs) 
Well, yeah. Who needs guns when you've got a couple of strapping (laughs) luchadors, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. The luchadors, we're just going to have the understanding that even if the bad guys have guns, they're going to forget to use them when Santo and the Blue Demon are nearby. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. And that's fine because it ends up they, – they usually used wrestlers as the stuntmen for these things. Mm-hmm. So the, the fights were actually sometimes pretty good. The, the one fight in with the bad guys, that wasn't their best. You can tell some of these guys were actors and really were like, hey, don't hit me kind of man. Kind of looks on their faces at times. <laughs> uh, so you, you can tell we're not working with high art here. But it is so much fun. I just love the aesthetic that these movies bring. As ridiculous as some of it is, there's just something about this weird world that, uh, man, it'd just be fun to live in. You know, I said in the Classic Five, what movie world would you want to live in? I don't want to live in the world of the Luchadors, man. That's number two. Oh, okay, okay. I gotta go number two. Okay. <laughs> I gotta go. But there's a world where I could live in with Ingrid Pitt and Carolyn Monroe first. Uh, gotcha. You know, uh, sorry. You know, I love you guys, but it's Carolyn Monroe, man. If you miss the bus to Hammertown, you take the train to Luchaville? Absolutely. Gotcha. Okay. Absolutely. Gotcha. Without even a second thought. You know, if I can't get into Hammertown, I got to go to Luchador Land. Okay. Oh, Luchador it's, Land. It's, even better. Okay. The thing about a lot of this, uh, these movies is when they come up with a good idea, sometimes it's like, hey, that's kind of cool. And they did that with the dagger. The dagger is supposed to kill evil people, and suddenly Eric doesn't want to work for the for Dracula and the Wolfman anymore. He wants their money. It's mentioned it again and again. And the dagger, while he's talking about it to Cristaldi's niece, Santo's girlfriend, it spins in his hand and stabs him to death, which came out of left field like, oh, where did that happen? And it was cool, too, because he had a good death scene. Yeah, I, I was pretty surprised by that as well. Um, in fact, I thought maybe I blinked a little longer than I should have and missed something uh, during that sequence and went back and watched it again. It's like, oh, okay, I, I didn't really miss anything. That just kind of happened. But, you know, it's neat. It, it, it was a neat use of the dagger, you know? That was one moment where I said, okay, you know what? You did something smart there. You didn't go for the easy, that's the only way to kill Dracula and the Wolfman, and they killed Eric with it. Which worked really well because uh, the guy, uh, Wally Barrett, Barone, he's this really big guy uh, uh, who – he has one of those faces where he looks like he's either the bad guy in a movie like this or he's the evil bum that lives in the lives on the corner. He just has this creepy, creepy face on him yeah. and he laughs a lot. And when he laughs, it's like, man, dude, I don't want to be near you. So when he gets this spun in his hand and he dies and he realizes that, hey, I'm not actually that human either. It was actually like, hey, you actually rose, man. That was cool. So I liked it. I I actually had a good feeling at that moment. It's like the first time in the movie, I think this guy is actually kind of interesting now. Besides when he's doing a Satan prayer and fires blowing around him. I mean, you you can never go wrong with a scene like that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, he's in the center of the screen, raising his arms, yelling at, at Satan, give him power and help him do whatever. And the gargoyles are spewing their fire. And yeah, it's a pretty cool sequence when he does that. So that looks cool. But yeah, the guy's just creepy. He feels greasy. Yeah, he was. That was that's the right word for it. Thank you. He had a greasy kind of look, which not one other person in this movie, whether they are 
uh, policemen or, you know, bad guys who were working for him. He just had this kind of glistening quality to his uh, skin, which is very the first time I've ever seen it in one of these kind of movies. I mean, I've never seen that before. So that's probably just him. And maybe it's just because he was a heavy set guy under lights. It was doing that to him. I can't tell you. But he really fit the mold of a very creepy kind of character. And if somebody did that on purpose, I give him credit for it because it gives you a kind of uncomfortable feeling when you look at him. Yeah. And whether that was a choice of the director, uh, Miguel Delgado, uh, or not, I don't know. I can't, I, I can't tell you. I suspect it wasn't because I have seen some Delgado movies. He did the two famous Santo Frankenstein movies. Uh, Santo uh, going against uh, the uh, son of Frankenstein and Santo going uh, against the daughter of Frankenstein. I think he did daughter too. I'm not positive. I just know Salazar did write them both. And they're notable mostly because of the names given to the Frankenstein doctors. The woman was Frida Frankenstein. Frankenstein, which I just found hilarious, but the male, the male Frankenstein, Doctor Frankenstein, was named Irving. Irving Frankenstein. Very intimidating. Yeah, I'm terrified. <laughs> Irving Frankenstein. It sounds like the name of the nephew of Frankenstein from a '70s cartoon. You know, it's like his, it's here's Dr. Frankenstein and here's my nephew Irving, who's the comic relief. But he was the bad guy in it. And um, yeah, Irving Frankenstein. So I've never forgotten those movies as well. Irving's unfortunately I've only seen in Spanish, so I can only get what I can get out of it. But he had a very creepy aspect to him as Wally Barone. So I, I kind of appreciated him. And if the material had been better, he could have been a villain all himself, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I honestly could have seen him surviving the movie and coming back as a bad guy. But that just didn't happen in these in these films. When you died in these movies, you really didn't come back. And uh, the only thing that was steady was... Every time they spoke in the ring about Santo, it was about how he was the hero of all Mexicans. And everybody, every time the Blue Demon was in the same movie, they talk about how skillful a wrestler he is. Uh, and so, yeah, Santo's the, the champion of the multitudes. It's always very flowery, whereas they always speak very highly of the Blue Demon's skill level. And strength. I th and, and strength. At the end, is it Blue Demon they're saying that he picked up his opponent like a piece of paper? Yes, yes, they like a piece of paper. You're right. I do remember that. It was also notable in this movie that Santo is the only one with a girlfriend. The Blue Demon is just sort of there as a helper. Santo has to be there to save the day. We get a lot more vampires and werewolves throughout this movie. And one of the funny moments of it is um, when they're showing the, the werewolves, they all sort of look like the first one, the, that Daninsky look. But one of them who appears throughout it, I think they ran out of makeup because he just looks like a biker. He had like a handlebar mustache and a little bit more uh, like a wig that was a little hairier, but nothing on his face. <laughs> and he gets killed, but then in another fight scene, he's back and fighting again. 
So it's like, okay, we ran out of material for, to put on your face. So we're just going to use you in two or three fight scenes. You know, that way you don't, uh, people know who you are, you know, that kind of thing. One thing that comes out of left field in this movie is suddenly there's a pit full of spikes. You know, when they first showed that, I was kind of confused because it's, yes. it's clearly a painting. Yes. It's not a very good matte painting. It's not a very, it's just a painting. And it's like, are we, I don't understand what we're looking at until later they show that there's this, yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. this, this makeshift bridge, I guess, just bored this plank running across this pit and there's this, the spikes in the bottom and okay. <laughs> and, and somehow there's handles on each end of the board Sure. And the big test was if you did something bad and failed, they put you on the board and you had to walk across. Well, they shake the board with the handles. And if you fall in, you die. You fall into the spikes. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of these movies over the years, I've read a lot of these books. Didn't know that, that wooden spikes killed werewolves. But, okay. Wooden spikes you know. and spears. Spikes and spears. And... They do not look good. <laughs> they do not look good. It just it just came out of like I, I honestly believe at times that these movies were written as they were going, and maybe again, this is just a theory. I think they found this painting. Oh, and, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that because it comes so nowhere, you know, it, it comes out of left field, and all of a sudden it's there. And it's like there's no setup, no explanation, and it, it reminds me – I'm going to – okay. You know I always find a movie that is obscure and strange and has nothing to do with monsters every time we talk, right? Here we go. In a movie starring Dan Aykroyd called Dr. Detroit where he has to dress up as Really? A, yes. <laughs> he has to dress up like a pimp. He goes into a costume section. And you hear him grabbing costumes randomly. Oh, I want that. I want that. And the driver's like, no, you can't use that. And one of the things he got was this like metal gauntlet from like a piece of armor. <laughs> I just I every time I get a moment of these movies, I get the impression of like that Dan Aykroyd moment where you know, M Miguel Delgado and Alfredo Salazar are walking through the studio, you know, the, the costuming area, and they find this matte painting and say, ooh, we could have a scene based in this. <laughs> now, Salazar's got to go back and write it, but there's been no setup and we've already filled, you know, 10 minutes of the movie. Sure. But there you go. There's your, there's your really deep, dark, distant moment for me <laughs> wow i went to there wow <laughs> <laughs> i always get a wow out of you when i find a really weird one well <laughs> there you go that's the thing i get in my head every time i've seen this movie that it's like delgado and salazar probably just found it and said let's write a scene around this unfortunately you know, I don't want to play spoiler, but part of it, it kind of destroys the end of the movie. It, it really does. It, it It's probably the least successful part of the film. Yes. Unfortunately. Not, I won't spoil it because it's to be seen. <laughs> yeah. Unless you want to spoil it. Well, no, it's it just, it, it's, it's disappointing. 
it, it's pretty Want disappointing. Me to spoil it? Yeah, go ahead. Why not? The blue demon is taken prisoner, and Santo finds him. And in all these movies, they don't try too hard where that to hide these things. It's just the old house outside of town where everything is happening. You know, the old abandoned house, mm-hmm. and underneath it has caves. And the blue demon is chained up, and Santo comes in and fights people and frees the blue demon. And they fight werewolves and all of that. And at the end, Santo pushes Dracula and the Wolfman into the spike pit where they die. The end. And, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Pretty much. And, and, and you get this moment of when you're watching the movie and you're like, okay, they're going to climb out now, right? No. No. They go down to the pit where they're sort of laying around among logs. And they turn into their skeletons again. What? That's what I always say when I see this movie. What? I've seen this movie many times. It's the first one I think I ever saw after, uh, other than Mil Mascaras. And I'm like, huh? Yeah. You've got, you got Dracula and the Wolfman and two wrestlers? You, you couldn't have done a, a fight? No, they didn't. Oh, man, that stinks. You know, we had something really fun going here, and I was looking forward to a fight scene. Unfortunately, you only get it with the the other vampires and the uh, other wolfmen. And it was a big mistake on their part, which is too bad, because it's a very fun movie. We're, well, Derek and I will make fun of this movie nonstop, but we're having a blast watching it for its foibles and its good stuff. Yeah, and I don't know if I'd even go as far as saying make fun of. I mean, we, we do criticize that element. And yeah, we do comment on the lack of acting or subtlety and things like that. But these movies, they, they bring a level of enjoyment to me. And I have to assume there's a handful of listeners out there that enjoy them as well. Otherwise, I wouldn't have any downloads this month. Um, That's true. <laughs> um, but these movies just, they, they speak to me on a weird level. Um you know, they appeal to my, my fandom in res- of wrestling. You know, I'm a wrestling fan. but And they appeal to my fandom of monsters. And it's just so flat out absurd. But they were successful films. And this gives me hope that, you know, there's an audience out there for everything. And I might decide to write or create a piece of content that is just flat out absurd. But you know what? If they have wrestlers fighting rex rufus and that was successful enough to make another movie then there's got to be an audience out there for my stuff right <laughs> it's kind of inspiring it's, it's, you know it's my entire career is based on that belief system <laughs> when i say making fun of i i have that mst3k kind of attitude towards towards a lot of movies where i'm i'm having fun while i'm teasing it yeah this movie has a lot of fun enjoyable stuff in it it has a, one of the best posters of all Lucha movies. I mean, it's just you get to see the two of the, the two of them really looking tough and strong in very professional wrestler kind of ways. And the action is very good. And it, yeah, the acting is what it is. And the story is, is about as subtle as a, as a brick to the skull. But it, it these are a real pleasure. I have a lot of fun watching these and, you know, slowly collecting them over the years. I don't have too many of them, but I watched a lot of them. Right. And 
you, you really can't go wrong with them when you watch these because you know what you're getting from the get-go. You're not going to get subtlety, but you can get surprises. There's a very famous lucha movie called Baron Bracola, where Santo fights this vampire. And the guy who wrote it plays Baron Bracola. He's also a former professional wrestler himself. They end up having some fight scenes in this movie that were worthy of any you'd see in the best professional wrestling arena. You know, you get these moments where you get to see their professional skills and it, it, it actually adds to the pleasure of it where it's it's not as slick as, say, a Marvel Comics movie, but it also has a little more real to it. When they throw a punch, you actually, you know, and you see it hit, you probably are assuming that somebody got bruised that day. You know, that's that's part of the deal. With yeah, these guys. <laughs> I think so. You've got the idea. You're going in with understanding. Don't look for high art. This is professional wrestlers versus Dracula, man. You you should be going in with fun in mind. And you get it. Yeah. You do get it in this movie for all its foibles and its poor ending. It has a lot to offer. And I really think Aldo Monte was a very good Dracula. Oh, he's great, right? He, he's always been one of the Draculas I keep in mind when I think of it. I mean, he's not. Bela has to be number one to me. He just is. He's Bela. End of discussion there. Christopher Lee is just magnificent, and there's so many other great vampires, but he's always in my top list because he just had, in such a, a cut-rate kind of way, the essence of the character from film right there. He didn't have to be subtle. He was Dracula. Yeah. And he, he looked the part better than many people do. You know, it, look – Gerard Butler played Dracula, and he looked about as much like Dracula as my pet cat. I, I don't hate his movie, but still. You know, I had I had high hopes for Gerard Butler, because he played Dracula, and then he played the Phantom of the Opera. I was like, okay, he's doing the monsters. We're going to get a guy doing the monsters. No. No. I, was, I, was, no. I, I had high hopes. <laughs> no. But it, this guy looks the part, and he takes what came from before him and used it really well. You can't really say much better for that for a movie made in Mexico in the in the 1960s, 70s right. era. True. This is true. Yeah, this is a 73 movie made in Mexico starring professional wrestlers. If, you, if you're looking for Hammer Horror, man, you're, you, you go to another aisle. You're in the wrong spot. <laughs> wrong spot. The wrong, wrong podcast. Um. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Not when you and my and I are doing it. I, I don't know that we ever really talk high art, you and I. Well, you <laughs> know, and it goes back again to something that I say here on the show all the time. There's no right way to enjoy a movie. You know, no. if if you want to watch it and do the MST3K thing, great. If you want to watch it and just get lost in this absurd world, great. If you want to think it's high art, great. You know, and, and maybe in some ways this is a weird... Uh, um, pop culturally relevant. I don't know what I'm saying, but it's just, it's fascinating, you know? I get where you're going. So this film, it is recommended. It does bog down a little bit in some spots. I mean, to be completely fair and honest, it does get a little slow in some spots. Uh, it does have a lack of music in some bits in the movie that tend to make the film feel slower than it really is. And I don't know why that is. Typically these movies have this weird drunk ice cream truck music playing you know 
Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's kind of the theme music when it first opened. It was like yeah. it was meant to be like classical piano. Mm, classical piano being played by a player piano with a drunken monkey you know <laughs> you know that was the best you know drunken drunken ice cream truck music yeah that's about right and but this one seems to lack a lot of that through big chunks of the movie and for that reason i did find myself thinking okay let's go let's get back to the wrestling and i don't know why that i mean i know that i'm a fan of film scores but i'm not sure why that made the film feel a little slower than it was it's not a very long film i mean it's your traditional feature length so it it, it didn't go any longer than it needed to be uh and that said though i i still really enjoyed the movie and i had a great time watching it and i i would love to see that guy play dracula more i know he didn't uh, at least not in these films but i thought He's a great Dracula, and he's going to be on my list of great obscure Dracula players. I mean, this guy was good. Yeah, he actually uh, – well, we said that he played him in, uh, in Santo and Dracula's Treasure. Mm -hmm. I looked it up, and he played Robles the Vampire, which has larger implications that I'll mention in a minute, uh, the vengeance of the female vampires. And uh, uh, Robles was – I think it was meant to be a tease, actually, because there was a famous vampire actor in Mexico named Herman Robles, uh, spelled German, who played a vampire for many years. And they were probably sort of teasing him by naming one of their vampires Robles <laughs> there. So he did that. But the rest of his career seems to have mostly been television. Yeah. But S Santo and Dracula's Treasure... Oh, what a movie. <laughs> Dracula, time travel, and craziness. It's like, oh, yes, this is it. Yeah, we talked about that last year with Mark Peterson. I had him on. We we tackled, I think it was, was it Mark that I did that with? I think it was. Yeah, so I did tackle that last year. And that one, you know, it's also fun, and it's got this great Dracula. Man, the guy's so good. He really does play it right. I used to make jokes about the fact that they had him in the very typical Dracula look, mm -hmm. complete with the the metal around his neck and the yeah. and, and the tux. But the older I get, the more I kind of understand why, because it kept a very simplicity to the story. You didn't have to think about this. This was Dracula every single scene. This is not Dracula, maybe. <laughs> this is He's it. And he holds the camera well in his moments. I wish they had thought of maybe using a stuntman that was his size so they could have given us a better fight scene. Sure. They could have easily done that for the werewolf, but they didn't seem to think of that. And that's too bad because it would have given us a little bit more. But, you know, you take what you get when you see a lot of movies, and that's one of the things with this. Did they make a couple of mistakes? Sure, but you get a decent, fun movie. I, I don't like to call them grade Z because it's really not. There's a lot of good stuff there. So it, it's a B. It's a B movie. It's a true B movie, and it is a fun B. That's a good way to put it and a good way to end the discussion about these films, I think. It's a nice way to kind of close here. They are a good time. Just yeah, they are. go and knock yourself out and have a blast. <laughs> I'll make sure there's a link to Frank Schildener's Amazon author page in the show notes so you can check out his book, see what he's up to, and follow along with his writing career. He does write a lot for Pro Se Productions. In fact, earlier this year, 
he was given his own imprint over there at Pro Se Productions. It's called Shildoner's World, and it is focused solely on everything that Frank's up to when it comes to new pulp and everything he writes for Pro Se Productions. Pro Se Productions is the premier modern-day press when it comes to all things new pulp. You should check them out as well. But make sure you check out Frank's first, because his stuff is just stellar big thanks to frank for being part of the show this week and of course we'll have him back on the show down the line uh let's not wait a year though let's not wait till next lucha de mayo let's pick something to cover later in 2019 thanks again frank when the moon is full the beast must die Eight people, each one a suspect. One of you is a werewolf. You, the audience, must track down the werewolf. You must choose between eight suspects. When the film stops, guess which one is the werewolf. Watch for the werewolf break. See it. Solve it. But don't tell. The beast must die. From Cinerama releasing rated PG, parental guidance suggested. The beast must die. Are you ready? Are you you ready? ready? To descend. To descend. With Pat Boone, James Mason, Arlene Dahl, and Gertrude the Duck. Where Where nothing nothing is is like like anything anything you have have ever seen. seen. Come along on the most fantastic adventure Jules Verne ever created. Journey Journey to the the center center of the the earth. Frankenstein's monster can be destroyed by fire. Dracula by a silver stake driven through his heart. But nothing, nothing will avail against the absolute evil of the creeping flesh. The creeping flesh. From Columbia Pictures, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. And I want to address something that came up earlier in Kenny's segment about Famous Monsters of Filmland. He talked a little bit about some of the uh, luchador movies, the monster movies from Mexico featuring women wrestlers. And I know that we haven't talked about any of the films featuring luchadoras in this Lucha de Mayo event, basically, or in previous years either. So hold me to it, ladies and gentlemen. Next year, we'll make sure we get at least one in there. There weren't nearly as many, but there are a couple, and they're a lot of fun too. So next year, let's make sure we tackle one of the Luchadora monster movies during Lucha de Mayo. And you can help me remember to do this by sending in some feedback. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. You can call in and talk about this movie, anything that we've talked about here on the show in the previous 400 or so episodes. If you want to talk about anything Monster Kid related, if there are any Monster Kid events coming up in your neck of the woods, we'd love to share them with people here on the show. And of course, once we get some feedback in, then Brenda will come back on and we'll read the emails on the show and just have fun with listener feedback. You can find this information on our website over at monsterkidradio.net where again there will be links to Frank's author page and everything else that we've talked about here on the show including Professor Frenzy's website and a link to my eBay listing because well if you follow me on Facebook you know that I've been putting things on eBay every few days or so and that's because I'm trying to build up the Derek doesn't have to sleep in the hallway at Monster Bash Hotel Fund. So uh, <laughs> Uh, check that out and uh, see if there's anything there that catches your fancy. Also on our website, we're going to have, well, what we're talking about next week, but I'm going to go ahead and ruin it for you now. A spoiler, a sneak peek. Next year, 
next year. Next month, Lucha de Mayo continues when we have Jonathan Inbody from the X Meets Y podcast come by, and we're going to talk about the movie Santo versus Blue Demon in Atlantis. It's from 1970, and it's a slightly different take on the luchador genre thing. <laughs> and that was my lovely wife, Brenda, in the other room. Probably can't hear her, but she's laughing and holding up her hand saying, you think? When I say it's a slightly different take. It is a slightly different take. I mean, it's still genre. It's still spooky. There's still some wrestling. It's a fun time, and you're going to have to come back next week, seven days, to get into that hot luchador action with me and Jonathan. Before next week, though, and you can probably count on this coming out later this weekend, so stay tuned to MonsterKidRadio.net, Steve Turek and I will be releasing the results of the current round of voting in the Monster Movie Madness Tournament. We were going to record it earlier this week, but uh, Steve was in a place where he didn't have good connections, and, well, I was busy having polyps cut out of my head. So uh, stay tuned for that. That'll be coming up later this weekend as well. Same feed. Don't have to do anything. Just make sure you refresh your pod catch your smoke signal thing. Anyway, that's it. Let's go ahead and wrap up. I want to remind everybody that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to, well, Professor Frenzy's segment. That belongs to him. And the opening and closing song, Dead Man's Hand, that belongs to Atomicos. That's that surf band that I mentioned at the top of the show. This is from their album, Surfadelic. And you can find their entire album as well as their previous albums over at Atomicos bandcamp.com drop them a line check out their music and let them know that you heard them here on monster kid radio my name is derek m cook i'll talk to everybody next week adios mm-hmm.